Good morning, guys.
Like, I don't know if Dad has one up here, but he's got, he's got several here. It's not. Um, that's all. Yes, ma'am. Um, no services tonight. It is a misprint. Yep. Yep.
Good morning. Well, that's a little better. One more time. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, bless you all. Uh, a couple of announcements today. Uh, we have highlighted number five. Uh, evening service resumes tonight. No, not today. We are supposed to have communion today. This is the first Sunday of the month, uh, and we need to uh, get back on track on that. So from now on, first Sunday of the month, count on Communion Sunday. Uh, and of course, uh, being Communion Sunday, there will be no evening service tonight. So uh, glad to see some of our folks are back on the mend and, and back. Has anybody got an update on Della Lewis, how she's doing? No one's talked to her recently? Okay. Right. Okay, if there are no uh, announcements or additions to our announcements, our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Psalm, Psalm 17, that'll be page 859 in your pew Bible.
Would you please stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer. Elder Clayton, may I prevail upon you to lead us. Our Lord, we're thankful again for this another Sunday that you provided for us to come and meet together. Thank you for our building. Thank you for the freedoms that we still have in this country. ask, Lord, that you would uh, help us through your spirit to learn from the scriptures today as you have your servant prepared a message for us. We know, Lord, that uh, not, not incidental, not coincidental, but it's a word that you want us to hear. So we ask, Lord, that we would be receptive to it. We all have uh, busyness that creeps in, and we pray that you would help us to follow your spirit, to set those things aside, to be more like Christ, to make application of the word, and to be better servants. Again, bless uh, your servant during the message. Please accept our worship and our singing and our praise. We take your brown hymnals and turn to number 458, 458 in the brown. Sorry, I said 458, it says 358. My bad. I want 358 because 458, I don't know. So. <laughs> 
we had a request already beforehand. I'm sorry. Um, he found it. Um, it's a, it's a different. It's, it's got a different name. I think he found it. It's um. <coughs> what a friend we have in Jesus. No. That's not it. <laughs> it is things to learn. So, so no, never mind. Terry, <laughs> Terry, your hand is up. I listened to Lord of the Psalms last, last week, and I was thinking about the battle hymn of the Republic in 569. 569 in the Brown battle hymn of the Republic. Yeah, I was shocked this was not um, requested. Bless. <coughs> Scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 47, and it'll be verses 1 through 24, and that'll be page 78 in your pew Bible, and when you come to that, 
Once again, please stand with us. <coughs> Genesis chapter 47, verses 1 through 24. <clears throat> Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, What is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, We have come to live here a while, because the famine is severe in Canaan, and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now, please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father... And your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen, and if you know any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land the district of Ramses. As Pharaoh directed, Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. And he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep, and goats, their cattle, and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. 
Yeah, we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's. And Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. Father in heaven, may you bless this reading of your holy and inspired word. Let it be imprinted in our hearts and minds that you are the one and only true God and that without you, Lord, all is lost and hopeless. And we rejoice that you have given the person of Christ in our lives. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen. Will you take your hymnal again, your brown one, and turn to number 378. 378.
Our scripture text this morning is Genesis chapter 47. In our last study, we learned that Joseph could no longer continue the ruse that he was playing out with his brothers. He was overwhelmed with tears and wailing when he told his brothers, I am Joseph. Now, he didn't look like Joseph because 22 years had passed since the brothers had seen him and because he was dressed in the garb of Egyptian ruler. So to convince them, he began unveiling details about his past that only Joseph would know. However, as he began to do this, his brothers did not exactly respond with joy at this news. I mean, if this really was Joseph, think about this, they saw themselves in extremely vulnerable to any vengeance Joseph would want to mete out on them for the evil way they had treated him. In fact, they were terrified as to what might happen. What a surprise then when Joseph began to calm their fears by directing them to think of how God was the one who had brought him to Egypt and for the purpose of preserving their lives during this terrible and devastating famine. Add to that that Joseph's demeanor in all of this was not hostile, it was not vindictive, it was not cruel, it was not harsh, but actually it was conciliatory and kind. The brother's fear, you see, was not founded in Joseph's behavior towards them. Their fear was due to a guilty conscience which saw a doomsday executioner standing before them and about to treat them for the way they had treated him. As the brother's Embarked on the trip to retrieve Jacob, their father, Joseph's father as well, their fears were allayed by Joseph's charge to them, don't quarrel on the way. Don't quarrel on the way. In other words, time to forget the past. Time to concentrate on God's grace to us all, bringing us together again as a family. Today's study deals with the severe severe famine and how things became so dire that the Egyptians began to sell themselves to Pharaoh as his servants, as his indentured servants. So as we come to our study, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. We do thank you, Lord, for these Old Testament accounts It shows us, Lord, that you're the same today and forever. 
Here are these brothers. They think they're in dire trouble because they're standing not before just Pharaoh's chief executive officer, but before the brother that they had treated so poorly in their past. What could they expect? They could expect nothing more than severe trouble, imprisonment, maybe even death. But instead they received grace. Lord, what a picture of how you treat us, how you deal with us. What we deserve for our sin is the judgment. In fact, the scripture says it's appointed unto men to die once, and afterward comes the judgment. But our judgment was meted out on Jesus, our Savior, who stepped into our place and on the cross gave his life a ransom for many. We bless thee for that. Help us in this hour as we look at the subject of indentured servants to see how blessed we are to be servants of the Lord God. We pray these things for your glory and our good. Amen. We're looking at the text, Genesis 47, and we're looking at the subject of indentured servants. We look in the text and we find things that go from bad to very bad and from very bad to the worst. What am I referring to? Well, when Joseph's brother came back from fetching Jacob, their father, when they came back to Egypt, their response to Pharaoh was, verse 4, We have come to live here a while because the famine is severe in Canaan, And your servants' flocks have no pasture. Skeptics of the Bible suggest that this famine was provincial. That is, local, not far-reaching. They're wrong about that. Just as they were wrong when they said Noah's flood was provincial, local, and not far-reaching. So much for the wisdom of skeptics. They assert this with great confidence because they cannot find references to it in the secular histories. But here are shepherds from Canaan who have come to Egypt, not simply to be reunited with their long-lost brother, whom they recently discovered alive, but because in their homeland of Canaan there is no pasture land for their sheep. It has been scorched by the hot sun and the extreme dry conditions, we would say the vegetation is toast. It's just brittle. It's all literally dried up. Pharaoh assigned them the land of Goshen, which, as we indicated last week, was in the eastern sector of the Nile Delta. With the Nile still flowing... There was water enough to sustain the grazing land in that area. And there's another consideration here. Before Pharaoh summoned the brothers to appear before him, Joseph prompted them to tell Pharaoh their occupation as shepherds. 
He goes on to tell them, Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable. The Hebrew here is an abomination to the Egyptians. Chapter 46, verse 34. So Joseph knows this about Pharaoh, knows this about the Egyptians. So he says to his brother, when you get down there and you, you stand before Pharaoh, you just tell him you're shepherds. You'll see what happens. Well, this being so, why would the brothers relocate their families and their livestock to Egypt if the famine was simply a local phenomenon? I want you to think about that. The skeptics are wrong again. If they knew that settling there, they would meet with hostile animosity and hatred from the Egyptians because they were shepherds, why would they go there? Well, brethren, they settle there because they're desperate. It's very simple. Canaan's pasture land is scorched earth. So if their livestock is to survive, they will have to bite the bullet and homestead in Egypt, even though the Egyptians are not going to roll out the welcome mat. I don't know where this Egyptian disdain for shepherds arose. But it may have been similar to our own country in the settlement of the West. When the cattlemen did everything in their power to discourage shepherds from grazing their sheep on the open range. There's a movie, by the way, called The Open Range. You can see some of that history. Why were the cattlemen opposed to that? Well, it's because sheep clip the grass off right down to the nubbins and they leave nothing there for the cattle. You can read about this in Wikipedia. It's called the Sheep Wars. It happened right here in the United States. And in that account, it refers to a series of armed conflicts in the western United States which were fought between sheepmen and cattlemen over grazing rights. And the sheep wars occurred in many western states, though they were most common in Texas and Arizona and the border regions of Wyoming and Colorado. Generally, the cattlemen saw the sheep herders, as invaders who destroyed the public grazing lands, which they had to share on a first-come, first-served basis. So between 1870, in our country, between 1870 and 1920, approximately 120 hostile engagements took place in eight different states or territories. At least 54 men were killed and some 50 to 100,000 sheep were slaughtered in what is known as the Sheep Wars. 
So this was very serious. So bottom line, Joseph's brothers would have to be pretty desperate to move all of their flocks to Egypt, a place not particularly friendly to shepherds. Okay, so what caused them? To be so desperate. Verse 4. This famine is severe in where? The, the famine is severe in Canaan. And our flocks have no pasture. This indicates to us that this famine was not simply local. But was widespread enough to affect the surrounding countries. And the impoverished Egyptians became willing slaves. In contrast to the richly watered land of the Nile Delta, verse 13 states, there was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. What follows then is a downward spiral from initially being able to purchase grain to our money is used up, verse 15. Then another year of famine in which they survive by trading their livestock for food, verse 17. Then in the next year, verse 18, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies. And our land, by us and our land, in exchange for food. And we, with our land, will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Verse 19. This gives another aspect to the whole idea of how Israel became subject to Egypt, other than the fact there arose a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. The context shows the extent of this servitude, verse 20 and following. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and they had food enough from the allotment that Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. Chapter 47, verse 20 and following. But for the rest of Egypt, it was as Joseph stated, verse 23, now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh, the other four-fifths 
you may keep as seed for the fields, as food for yourselves and your household and your children. People were so filled with gratitude at this. Look at verse 25. You have saved our lives. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Now we might think it's strange that the Egyptians would express thankfulness for having lost their farms, lost their freedom in this transaction. Which from our viewpoint seems a little lopsided and possibly a bit excessive. Should people really have to lose their freedom in order to survive? Their farms? Their crops? In the movie Robin Hood, starring Russell Crowe as Robin and Kate Blanchett as Maid Marian, the corrupt vicar of the local church in her hamlet bags up all the seed corn from the granary, and he's in the process of loading it in his ox-drawn cart to take it with him to his new post in York. What? Maid Marian is appalled because she knows there can be no crop for her people if they have no seed to plant. The response of the vicar was this. Certainly you do not expect the church to let its corn be used to plant your fields. The people of Nottingham should reap what they sow and repent of their sins. And Maid Marian responded, I thought, well, she said, the miracle I prayed for is that the bishop, in this case the bishop of York, would show some Christian charity. Ooh, yeah. She hit on the right nerve. And godly charity is exactly what Joseph demonstrated to the Egyptian people who lost everything trying to stay alive during this seven years of famine. He did not confiscate every last scrap of seed, but instead provided the people with the seed to replant. He gave them generous provisions of only paying one-fifth of the yield to Pharaoh, meaning they could keep the rest for their own use. They could sell it. They could feed their own families. And the people rightly concluded, you, you have saved our lives. In addition, verse 27 says, of the Israelites, they acquired property in Goshen, and there were fruitful. They had a baby boom and increased greatly in number. Chapter 46, verse 26, all those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons with the two sons who had been 
born to Egypt in, by, in Joseph's family, the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt turned out to be 70 in all, according to Genesis 46, verse 26. And Exodus 1, verse 6 and 7 says, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Exodus 1, verse 6 and 7. And after living there for four centuries, when they fled Egypt in the Exodus, Moses tells us, let me read it for you, they were about 600,000 men, not counting women and children. And many other people went up with him too, servants and workers and so on. So in the Exodus, it is estimated by theologians that the people of Israel numbered well over one million people. Perhaps as many as 1.3 million, which is a tribute to their procreative energy and the blessings of God expressed in Exodus 1, verse 6, the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. And you will recall that it was this large population explosion among the Israelites that made the new Pharaoh fearful that if Egypt was ever attacked by, let's say, an outside force, and Israel was sided with that force or power, the Egyptian monarchy would be overthrown. I mean, they did some adding up. See, we got these people among us, these Israelites, boy, they number into the million. And if they were ever to side with an enemy trying to overthrow us, we would be sorely defeated. Thus, what was a blessing from the Lord, many children, became a burden for them to bear under a fearful Pharaoh. And so it resulted in an edict that as the midwives worked their responsibility of delivering children for the Israelites. They were told that the male children born unto Israelites, to Jews, were to be thrown into the Nile and executed. And that was the time when Moses was born. And you remember the account in Scripture of how his family preserved him, disobeying the Pharaoh's orders. Now that brings us to the burial wish of Jacob. All men die, but not all have premonition of just when that's going to be. Verse 28 indicates that Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years in Goshen when he came from Canaan. He was 147 years old. 
Sensing that his time was near, he called for Joseph and had him take an oath. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, in other words, when I die, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. His ancestors. So just where are Jacob's ancestors buried? Chapter 50, verse 12 and following. So Jacob's son did as he had commanded him. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machabah near Mamre, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephraim the Hittite along with the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone up with him to bury his father. Genesis 50, verse 12 and following. This was the day before commercial cemeteries. People buried their dead in fields adjoining or actually on their personal homestead. I remember this in Pennsylvania as a kid. I lived in a farm community and all the farmers had a plot out in some field of theirs, quadrant off, usually with some kind of fencing, wrought iron, usually. And that was the burial plot for their family. So when they died, or their children died, they weren't buried in cemeteries, they were buried in the family plot on the property. This was the day before cemeteries. This same practice occurred in the early settlement days of our own country. Farmers, ranchers would quadrant off a section of a field or woods and designate it as the family burial site. And with the increase of the urban centers and change of occupation in the Industrial Revolution, people moved to the cities to live and to work there. Well, where do you bury your dead when you live in the city? And they died. There was no farm on which to bury the dead. And so cemeteries came into being. And people still bought family plots within the acreage of the cemetery to bury their dead. You can walk into any modern cemetery and includes the Metamora Cemetery right up the road. And you can discover the Smiths, the Joneses, the Snyders, the Hawthorns, whoever. They've bought plots within the Metamora Cemetery for their families. This was all the more important to Jacob and his spiritual heritage. He had no desire to be laid to rest in the pagan country of Egypt. Back home in Canaan, there was a burial plot with Abraham's name on it. And there is where Jacob wanted his remains to be buried. And as we shall learn, Joseph kept his vow 
to Jacob to see to it that his wishes were carried out. Now all this shows some practical applications for us. Number one, people will go to extreme measures to sustain life and yet neglect measures to sustain eternal life. Think of it. You've all heard of the slogan, well, desperate times demand desperate measures, which is a way of saying that life throws us some curveballs now and again, and what you and I thought would be our lives as we aged may turn out radically different from what we planned. Right? I mean, I don't think Jacob anticipated relocating his entire family to Egypt. The land God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had little to do with Egypt. But what does a responsible person do when circumstances change so radically that one's survival is at stake? We know that Jacob did try. I mean, he did try to stay in Palestine. Not once, but twice, he sent his sons to Egypt with the express purpose, let me read it for you, go down there and buy some food for us so that we may live and not die. Chapter 42, verse 2, chapter 43, verse 2. So he's trying to survive right there in Palestine. We drive 5, 10 miles to Walmart or Myers to buy food, but we would not think of journeying to Canada or Mexico to buy food. I mean, who does such a thing? I'll tell you who does such a thing, desperate people. Desperate people who can honestly say to Pharaoh, the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. Chapter 47, verse 4. And no pasture means no livelihood, no mutton for the diet, no wool for winter clothing, no livestock with which to barter for other necessities of life. That's what it means. The domino effect starts out with one or two falls and before long the entire wall of bricks comes crashing down. And not only did Jacob send his sons to Egypt to buy food, but it wasn't too much longer till all 70 household numbers members migrated there. Now that's pretty desperate. We're going to take our whole clan and we're heading to Egypt. 70 people. But people, they will do what is considered a necessity. Even something very difficult without precedence in order to eat another meal, in order to stay alive. That's how precious life is to us all. Do you hear what's going on in California? 
people are being taxed to the point of utter ruin. Losing their properties, their homesteads, because their taxes are through the roof. So what are they doing? They're moving to Texas. Why Texas? Because Texas has no income tax. That's why. You mean they would pick up their whole family and move to another state? Going on as I speak. Yeah, they will. That's how precious life is to us all. But when it comes to measures of sustaining our spiritual lives to gain eternal life, people are woefully indifferent and they're downright lazy. God's bread from heaven, Jesus taught, I am the living bread and I came down from heaven and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. John 6, verse 51. And the eating of his flesh to which Jesus refers is defined within context. He says in verse 35 and following, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. To ingest Christ is to believe in him. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Thornburg Church is not the only gospel preaching church in Lapeer County. But it is in a rural setting. Jacob packed up his entire family and moved them to Egypt to feed them physically. So what's a 20-minute drive to Thornville to feed on the bread of heaven and drink from the fountain of life? Yet people take the easy route. Oh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll just go to the church down the street. Which may or may not be preaching the gospel of grace. They will drive to Flint for a fine fish dinner at Whitey's but make no effort to latch on to that one who is the great fisher of men. These are marred priorities indeed, and deadly ones. Jesus said, your forefathers ate manna, and they died. But he who feeds on this bread from heaven will live forever. John 6, verse 58. There's feeding your body, and that's important. But Jesus says there's another kind of feeding you need to do. You need to feed spiritually on me by faith. Brethren, the choices we make in life may seem temporary. When reality, they may set our destiny for years to come. When Jacob appeared before Pharaoh in Egypt, he gave this explanation of his intent. This is Jacob speaking. We have come to live here a while. 
because the famine is severe in Canaan, and your servants, us, your servants' flocks have no pasture. Verse 4. We have come to live here a while. Very interesting. A while. What is that? A while is an indefinite measure of time that could mean anything from four months to four years. But could Jacob see himself and his family living in Egypt for over 400 years? Hmm. In Genesis 12, 1, we are told now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Very next chapter, Abraham was expelled from Egypt because of the deception about Sarah being his sister that he had fostered on Pharaoh. Chapter 13, verse 1, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had and Lot along with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock, in silver and gold. From the Negev he went on to the place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Genesis 13, the first four verses. Back to his spiritual roots. That's where he goes. So his stay in Egypt was indeed for a while. Temporary, brief. It's the way it was. But you know, God is under no obligation to do, to do the same thing twice. To Abraham in a later chapter, chapter 15 of Genesis... Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. But I will punish that nation they serve as slaves. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Genesis 15. Verse 13 and following. Jacob told Pharaoh that his plan was to stay in Egypt for, for a while. For a while. Yet he died in Egypt. And so did Joseph. And so did four generations of Israelites so much for a while. Our plans, even those filled with the best of intentions, have no guarantee of fulfillment. Do you know that? Because our plans may not coincide with God's and God wants us to live by faith in him and not by some skillful maneuvering.
When Don and I received the call from Thornville Church to leave Pennsylvania, which was our homeland and our families, and come out here, we talked to each other and we said, well, we always wanted to see the West. So we'll go to Thornville. They've called us, from what I know from Blake Laslett and others. It's a good church. They'll love the Lord. They'll love the Word of God. That's all I ever ask. From a gospel church. So why don't we just go and minister? And then when I retire, we'll go out west and we'll, we'll see that Grand Canyon and the Grand Teton Mountains and Mount Washington in Mount Rushmore. But God had other plans. And when you live by faith, you better be ready to have your plans coincide with God's. Are we to live then aimlessly with no plan, directions for travel, for goals? Are we to have none of those to strive for? Well, not at all, but we are to make our plans with God's sovereignty in the forefront. And we don't dictate to him, he dictates to us. And he moves providence in such a way that you may get to live out your plans, or you may not. You may have to give due consideration that God has something else planned for you. Solomon's advice is good advice. Here's what he said. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but... It is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Go ahead and make your plans, but just keep in mind, it's the Lord's purposes that are going to win out. Again, he says, commit to the Lord whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. The Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live in peace with him. Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. In his heart, a man... Plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Proverbs 16, verse 3 through 9. 
Solomon's father, King David, put it this way. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and he sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the heart of all who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eye of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in, the, in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Psalm 33, verses 10 and following. Temporal decisions may result in lengthy, lengthy exposures and experiences. Then finally, survival spiritually like survival physically, can occur only with those willing to be subservient to the one that's in power. As the famine of Egypt began to intensify with no relief in sight for the people to save themselves through hard work and industry, they spent all of their money, spent all of their money on food. Verse 15, they say, our money is used up. Our money is used up. So Joseph responded, then bring your livestock, verse 16. And I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock. Following year of famine, verse 19, buy us, they're saying, and our land in exchange for food. Things are really desperate. And we and our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. And verse 21 shows the outcome. Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. And when all that was said and done, he gave them seed to plant a new crop which would enable them to survive even after paying a fifth to Pharaoh of their produce. Verse 24. What was the people's response to Joseph's administration? Did they curse him? Did they accuse him? First, you've taken all our money, then all of our livestock, 
And finally, you have taken all of our land and reduced us to slaves. No, <laughs> no, no. They didn't do any of that. Instead, there's nothing but praise that rolls off their lips. Verse 25, you have saved our lives. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. Little L, they're talking to Joseph. May we find favor in your eyes. Our American Republic has no fondness for dictators, for kings, for monarchs. We fought long and hard for our independence, and we have no desire to become the servants of anyone. And this is because to be ruled by evil men is a burden too heavy to bear. Isaiah put it like this, For the fool speaks folly. His mind is busy with evil. He practices ungodliness and he spreads error concerning the Lord. The hungry he leaves empty. The thirsty he with, from them he withholds water. What? The scoundrel's methods are wicked. He makes up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies. Even when the plea of the needy is just. Wow. Isaiah 32 verse 6 and 7. Oh, but what a difference if the righteous are in power. But the nobleman makes noble plans. I'm reading scripture. And by noble deeds, he stands. Isaiah 32, verse 8. Solomon says, Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at a proper time for strength, not for drunkenness. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 17. To be a servant, to be a slave under such a monarch is a blessing, not a curse. And may I say that Jesus is the king of noble birth. He is the prince and savior as the son of God. In saving us, he has stripped us all of our money so that we may be holden to his grace lest we try to buy with money a spot in heaven, yet we are not impoverished. We are invited. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, you come, you buy, you eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Isaiah 55, verse 1. He has deprived us of our livestock so that we may gain sustenance by feeding on the bread of heaven and drinking from the well that never shall run dry. He has bought us as his servants with his own precious blood and elevated us to be Purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God who will reign on the earth. Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10. Jesus has purchased our land holdings, making them part of his rule. So that our vision is not a mansion in Beverly Hills. 
but instead a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called our God, for he has prepared a city for them. Hebrews 11, verse 16. Notice in our text, verse 22, that Joseph did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and they had food enough for the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That's why they did not sell their land. But what does Peter say about us? You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. A people belonging to God. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10. Jesus is the king. He's the monarch who utilizes all of his power, his property, his rule, his wisdom, his know-how to promise. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, uh, my burden is light. Matthew 11, verse 28 and following. Who wouldn't love a king like that? But you have to see him by faith in that position. And the world doesn't have faith. Not saving faith. So they're out to make their own mansion on the hilltop. They're striving to save up enough for their own retirement. They're planning their trip to the Bahamas. Or wherever. All destined to perish. In the coming judgment. But we have an inheritance that cannot fade away. The scripture says. Where thieves do not break through and steal. Where rust does not corrode the silver and gold. That God has prepared for us. What a glorious hand waits his people. And Joseph is a symbol of that. How he provides, provides for his family. May you come to know Christ today if you don't know him. You trust him. This world is on the verge of passing away. Won't be here forever. God has promised, I'm going to make all things new, a new heaven, a new earth, in which dwells righteousness. Will you be there? Father, we thank you for your word. Sometimes it really digs at us, causes us to squirm a bit. That's okay. If it wakes us up, it's more than okay. It's wonderful. 
better to wake up than to die in our sleep. To die in a comatose. Never alert to the sinfulness of our heart and the Savior that is available to us by faith. Help us wake up. (coughs) We'll praise you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is 379 in the hymnal. We'll sing that, then we'll take a 10-minute break and regather for our communion service. So, closing hymn, 379. Take a 10-minute break. We gather when you hear the music for the Lord's table.